Welcome to the Wednesday Bible study. Uh, thank you for being with us. We're still in the you know social distancing, and so we do not have the guys in the room. And for you guys that have been coming here so faithfully over the last four years until we ran into the pandemic, I, I miss you guys so much. And I hope you all are getting these uh, these you know watching right now on YouTube live or getting the archives. I do want to talk to those of you that watch the YouTube archive? We understand. Uh, Adler and I have been going back and forth, trying our best uh, to keep commercials out of your archive when you watch it on YouTube. Now, if you watch live, you don't have any issues. But if you're watching uh, the YouTube archive, uh, YouTube from time to time is dropping commercials in. The reason why that's taking place is that we are just don't want to give up being associated with the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel. Because I cannot tell you the number of people that I hear that say I was watching a Rick and Bubba archive and the next thing that came up on the playlist was this Bible study. I didn't know you guys did that. I found the Bible study. Hey, God used it to change something in my life, to reach me for Christ, to reconcile me back to God, or I'm being sanctified and I'm growing. And man, we just don't want to give up that opportunity. I mean, we could come off of the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel create a Burgess Ministries YouTube channel, but but then we would lose those incredible opportunities. We believe that we've remedied that. Uh, hopefully you won't see that again watching this archive. If you do, be sure and let us know. Uh, can we get rid of all the commercials? Uh, probably we would, we'll do our best, but you shouldn't have the reoccurring ones throughout the Bible study, so we apologize for that. But no, that's not anything we're doing. It's because this Bible study is on the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel. And of course, that has so many subscribers and viewers that YouTube does drop advertising uh, on the, the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel. And sometimes we get pulled into that. So I'm sorry that you have to go through that from time to time. Adler does an incredible job of minimizing that. And we are on it, but we believe it's worth it to have access to all the people that are finding this Bible study all over the world. So and you also, if, if that bothers you, there's also just an audio version only of the archive every day that you can enjoy on the Rick and Bubba podcast channel or by going to BurgessMinistries.com and just clicking on the listen button. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for our time together uh, as we take on this, this uncomfortable but important topic of assessing ourselves to ask the question, are we even of the faith? Uh, as we look at cultural Christianity and, and, and ask the uncomfortable question, am I a true follower of Jesus? Or am I just a traditional cultural Christian? Uh, and, and, and we'll unpack that again today, Lord, to help us to work our way through it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so if you're new to this series, this is part two. Uh, it, it's from the book by Dean and Sarah, who's a pastor in Tallahassee, called The Unsaved Christian, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. Now, this is not intended uh, to come across as, you know, I, I'm trying to, you know, drop a hammer and, and judge your uh, you know, salvation. Only God can do that. However, I believe it's important because this is part of my testimony. I, I was delivered from cultural Christianity, and, and we'll talk about why that's important again today. Can't tell you the number of emails I'm already getting, so even session one has already what already caused us, which I, I figured it was, uh, it would, to, to ask ourselves some uncomfortable questions. And don't be afraid to do that. Uh, don't let arrogance and pride stand in the way of redemption and salvation uh, because you have adopted some traditions that seem to be Christian-like. Uh, and we'll talk about that again today. One, one programming note, themanchurch.com, 
Uh, we're going to have a webinar on May the 28th. Uh, if you're watching this and you're part of men's ministry for your community or your church, and you would, <clears throat> you would like to see a training session, we were going to do it in person, but they keep pushing back this social distancing. So we're going to quit banging our head against the wall. We're going to do a webinar in anybody in any state in, in anywhere in, in the world. You can be part of this webinar. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. All you have to do is register for it, and we do need you to re- we do need you to register. And we will talk about how to implement themanchurch.com and our discipleship strategy for men. We'll show you exactly how to work it. We'll show you what resources we have available. If you'd like to be part of that, go to rickandbubba.com. Look under events. You'll see the link to uh, to register, or go to burgessministries.com. Same thing. Look at events. You'll see it for May twenty eighth. It's free. All you have to do is register. All right, so we're moving into chapter 2 of, uh, of the unsaved Christian. This is called Religion Without Salvation. Listen to this quote from George Whitfield. Do not flatter yourselves of being good enough because you are morally so. Because you go to church, you say the prayers, and take the sacrament. Therefore, you think no more is required. Alas, you are deceiving your own souls. That's George Whitfield. And, um, and so we jump in, and, and Dean and Sarah says, I know that we're going to talk about cultural Christianity. And he gives you an example of this fictional camp family. If you have the book and, and you've read that, you see that in chapter 2. And the bottom line is he takes this fictional cultural Christianity family, and he goes through their lives, and he asks us to look at, at these things. And we'll, we'll talk about a lot of them today because it's very similar. Uh, Dean and Sarah and I have very similar testimonies. So we'll delve into that a little bit. And these concepts are found in this fictional family called the Camp Family. And they're, they're cultural Christians. And you can read through that. And I'm not going to read all that to you today uh, because there's nothing worse when you're doing uh, you know, some sort of study or listening to someone that they read you paragraph after paragraph of something. It's short, but we'll get to all the, the points of it anyway. So, But then he makes a point before we go into more about cultural Christianity that this book is taking on that, but there are two other kinds of what we would call fake Christians, and he talks about those a little bit, and that is the wolf in sheep's clothing uh, and the hypocrite. So that's not what the book is going to focus on, but we're going to spend a minute or two on these two kinds of unsaved Christians as well. But we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because they're pretty straightforward. The wolf in sheep's clothing, if you look at Matthew 7, 15, and, and you listen to what Matthew says about these people, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So this is someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. Uh, they're trying to deceive you. And then, of course, we talked about this last week. This is in that part of Matthew 7 that Jesus talks about. And he says, if you want to know who the wolves are in sheep's clothing, you would recognize them by their fruits. And then it goes on to say, because, you know, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Sooner or later, the wolf in sheep's clothing uh, will show themselves. Uh, and it says this. It says, Buck Parsons reminds Christians that false teachers creep into the church, not because they look like false teachers, but because they look like angels. This is a completely different animal than the nominal Christian, whereas a cultural Christian might avoid serious church commitment or think it's unnecessary. The false teacher often digs deep into a community and can pose a serious threat to the church by manipulating and misguiding people. And here's what Scripture says. It's more than Matthew 7. 
Uh, they create division. Write this down for a false, uh, false teacher, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17. So a wolf in sheep's clothing will create division within the church, will deceive with flattery, Romans 16, 18. If you've been in this Bible study a long time with me, you know that this is one thing that my wife uh, was used by God with her great spiritual discernment. She says this to me all the time. She says, be really careful when people come to you, Rick, and they start with flattery. Because so many times, a wolf in sheep's clothing will always flatter you. And they'll deceive you with flattery. So always look for that. The other one is they'll, they'll appease people by departing from sound doctrine. Now, Paul talks about this clearly in 2 Timothy 4.3. You know, we see this in too many pulpits right now that have false teachers in the pulpit. They're thinking to themselves, in order for me to appease the, the church here and, and keep my numbers at a certain level and keep the money coming in, I'm willing to, uh, to completely depart from sound doctrine and just give the people what they want. Well, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And Paul talks about them in 2 Timothy 4.3. They will lead people astray. Matthew 24, 11 through 13. Matthew 24, 11 through 13. This is clear. A false teacher uh, will ultimately lead you away from truth and will lead you away from true salvation. Uh, take people, they'll also take people captive through bad philosophy and theology. Uh, Colossians 2.8. They'll take people captive with bad philosophy and theology. You see this a lot. I mean, you see people. I remember um, vividly uh, when, when our youngest son went to heaven uh, and there were people uh, that we knew uh, that had been deceived by philosophy and false theology. And according to what they had been told, all the things they did should have kept our son from dying. Uh, there was even some things that were attempted that I won't even get into that were bizarre. But the reason why these things were attempted that were bizarre is they were clinging to these philosophies and clinging to this false theology because it had them captive. And praise the Lord, uh, some of this was used to rattle them out of that uh, trance. Also, <clears throat> a wolf in sheep's clothing will seem to have spiritual power and authority to deceive even the elect. Look for that in Matthew 24, 24. Perfect example. And man, a listener in our audience uh, sent this to me, and it, it was perfect. This, this uh, YouTube video that people are obsessing over called Out of Shadows. And it's extremely troubling to show some of the evil and wickedness that's going on uh, throughout you know, the government and going on in Hollywood and the way movies are used to manipulate people and how popular music can be used to manipulate people. And, and behind it, there's almost an occult and satanic force. And you're looking at this, and certainly I, I, I don't find that hard to believe, but you're looking at this and you start thinking, wow, this is really, really bad, but you know what you don't see? It never points you to Jesus. It, it never points you to Jesus as the answer, which means you have to be careful that a false teacher under the authority of Satan, whether they, they know it, and they usually do, or under the authority of themselves, they'll try to deceive you by making you look, make it look like they're going down a right road. So even those of us that might be followers of Jesus go, well, this sounds about right, but you got a lot, you got to watch for subtle things like in this video when they never point you to Jesus. They never point you to the gospel. So that means they're about to point you to something 
that you may think is better than what you saw, but it's still just as wrong. So you got to watch for that. Also, the other, our, our, uh, a false uh, teacher uh, will bring upon themselves at some point a swift destruction. Second Peter 2, 1. Sooner or later, God gets tired of it. And, and you'll look up and you'll see this false teacher will bring upon themselves by all this arrogance and all these things that they have, uh, eventually their own destruction. So that's the wolf in sheep's clothing. The next one is the hypocrite. And probably, I, I listened to John MacArthur talk about this the other day in one of his messages uh, from the past. And, and John MacArthur says the hypocrite is the one who perplexes him the most. Because the hypocrite knows that they're not sincere. They know, it's not like a cultural Christian who, who has been fooled into thinking they're okay. The hypocrite knows they're, 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 they're saying one thing and living another. They know exactly what they're doing. And John MacArthur says, I don't fully understand their plan. What, what, why are they doing this? What, what's the end game other than maybe business could work out because I'm making some contacts at church or whatever. But the hypocrite, this is a person who wears the mask of a Christian in order to be seen and admired by others with no desire to actually follow or worship Christ. You find out about them in, in Matthew 6, uh, 5 and 6. And when, the, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So, so what he's saying is the hypocrite does it for attention. But again, what's the end game that this attention breeds? They, they must see something good about being betrayed as a Christian, but they know they're not. They don't have any desire to be one. Uh, this person is exclusively external, only concerned with having the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of the private vice, whatever it may be. John Blanchard calls hypocrisy nothing better than skin-deep holiness. I love that, John Blanchard. While the false prophet might be seeking to deceive others to a false gospel, the hypocrite seeks to deceive others for their own pride or appearance, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, these people often have a skewed, elitist view of their own morality, yet they're unmistakably missing the fruit of heart uh, of a heart changed by God. This kind of unsaved Christianity is perhaps the most individualistic, but this too is different from nominal Christianity, as the hypocrite is likely aware of his own moral inconsistency. I'm with John MacArthur. I don't really understand the hypocrite unless there's some gain for them being perceived uh, as a Christian or as someone is holy or it's just pride and arrogance, but they know that they're fake. They're not deceived. Cultural Christians are different. Uh, cultural Christians are not wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're not hypocrites. They sadly, I used to be this way, they have a false sense of redemption that is delusional. Okay, And so what we have to do is be sure we don't fall in that category. Here's what it says. Cultural Christians are those who genuinely believe they are on good terms with God because of a church familiarity, which is a hard word for me, a generic moral code, a political affiliation. Hang on to that. We're going to unpack that a little more as we go through this book. A religious family heritage. You know, and I can keep going. Cultural Christianity is a largely is largely based on confusion, whereas the hypocrite and the false teacher have a Christianity that's based on deceit. That's important. Let's get that again. Cultural Christianity is largely based on confusion, 
whereas the hypocrite and the false teacher have a Christianity that's based on deceit. It's two different things. And honestly, cultural Christianity may be more dangerous because it has so many people in an illusion that they're good. I'm good. So then Dean and Sarah goes into his testimony, which is very similar to mine, and and we'll go through this quickly. Uh, He grew up going to church. Uh, He, like me, would be at a a dinner table or a lunch, and what would you say? God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for our food. We did that at about every meal. Uh, We certainly always owned Bibles. Um, He said he was confirmed at the Methodist church. I, I never grew up in the Methodist church, so I'm not familiar with that. But he was, and he says, I was confirmed at the Methodist church. He said, I didn't read the Bible. I didn't study the Bible. He said, but I knew Bible stories. You know, are you in that category? I was. I, I didn't study the Bible. I didn't know much about the Bible, but I did know a lot of Bible stories. I knew about David and Goliath, and I knew about the parting of the Red Sea, and I knew all the Bible stories. I didn't know where they were in the Bible, but I knew them. Then another one. He was an athlete. He was part of FCA, Fellowship Christian Athletes. I did that too. Uh, he, he attended on a regular basis. I didn't attend on a regular basis. Um, uh, I think I did maybe in high school, but, but I didn't in college. Uh, he had the typical testimony, you know, and, and he heard typical testimonies. You know, players and coaches would come in to these FCA retreats, and, and uh, he said, I heard all their stories. And, you know, and some of those are really good because one of them is used by God to save his life, talking about Dean and Sarah. But sadly, a lot of times, when, and I love FCA, and I, work, and I do work with FCA, but you've got to be really careful. Uh, even when we started doing the men's ministry at my home church, I said, let's try to stay away uh, you know, from football coaches and athletes that come in and tell a bunch of stories about their playing days and then awkwardly try to tie it to Scripture. Listen, I want to hear somebody who's a devout follower of Jesus talk about how Jesus changed their life, period. Now, if they want to sh- throw in some analogies from their life that happen to be athletic, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, what, what we need to do is to let Scripture be the foundation of the story, not a football, baseball, basketball story, golf, that then somehow we're going to try to make a, a Bible story or a testimony. You know, the worst one I ever heard in my entire life was a guy who spent the entire message telling us, he said, I'm going to tell you what the most important thing in my life is, but then he listed all of his accolades that he got athletically, but he would tell us humbly, that that wasn't the greatest thing that ever happened to him. And eventually he told us that Jesus was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. He could have just started there. But he wanted to be sure that we heard every athletic accolade he'd ever had. When I was an All-American, that was not the greatest thing. Uh, when I when I led uh, the, my conference in receptions, that was not the greatest thing. When I was coaching and coached these championships, that was not the greatest thing. This is a guy who wants us to hear what he's done throughout his athletic career, and we eventually get to Jesus. See, that kind of stuff doesn't really serve us well, and you'll find out because Dean and Sarah said he had heard these kind of things, uh, and he said, but I would have told everybody I was a Christian. Now, I would not have said that I had repented of sin, and I, and I didn't really know the truth in Jesus, and I didn't understand exactly why he died for me other than I knew that that paid a price, but I didn't understand about the severity of sin, the repentance of sin. Uh, I had no concept at all of my sinfulness, and the, and the severity of the sinfulness, he says this. He said, I just kind of looked at those things as bad behavior. That, that's about the level that he put his sin of, well, that's not great behavior. I can do better than that. You know, I, I said this this week. Um, can you imagine 
the way the the church the church is being forced to act about COVID nineteen, and, and what we're we saying, we're willing to do everything we can do. Nothing wrong with that. Let me, hear me out. I'm not I'm not being critical of that. We want to do everything that we can do to make sure that we don't unnecessarily put anybody in jeopardy and anybody in danger. Got no problem with that. But what if we had that same commitment to the severity of sin? What if the church said? Sin is so severe, and the Bible tells us it's so disruptive and destructive, we'll do everything we can to make sure that sin does not come into this church body and live open and unopposed and destroy the church body and put people at unnecessary risk. What if we had the same commitment to the severity of sin? And, and Dean, like me, said that he did not. And sometimes, sadly, it doesn't appear the church does much anymore in a lot of cases. But so he said that he, uh, he, he was listening to this other person talk. Another player came in, and he said the guy was a former professional player, and he was, he was huge in all this, and he said he was massive. But then he said he started preaching Matthew 7, 21-23, which we talked about last week. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and, and we did all these things, and I'll say that, you know, I never knew you. Only those that do the will of my Father will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And this speaker, thank him, whoever he is, for his commitment to the true gospel, said there's a lot of you in here right now that you are going straight to hell because you're delusional that you're really a Christian. You, you, you are the people that, that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And he said, I want you to know that God is holy and he cannot let sin go unpunished. He can't. He's holy. And Dean and Sarah said he'd never heard this before. And he said there was a second invitation that was given. And he said, this speaker was talking about a Jesus with whom I was not familiar. I realized I had never really heard the true gospel. He said, how in the world did this happen? And what he realized is, I had never been told to repent. I, I was shocked by that. So Dean and Sarah said that he went through his, his childhood and as a young person being uh, confirmed at the Methodist church, and he had never really been taught about repentance. He, had, he, he didn't understand the severity of sin, and he didn't understand about repentance. Well, let me tell you why that's shocking. Uh, of course, you, you, don't, you, don't hear that, you don't hear sin and repentance preached as much as it once was. But the reason why that's shocking is that in Acts chapter 2, the very first time that Peter gets it right, he now has the Holy Spirit. He now has been reconciled back to Christ. Then Christ ascends and gives them the Holy Spirit, including Peter. Now this cowardice Peter, who made bold statements and then would not live up to what he thought his commitment to Jesus w w was really like. He was delusional about how committed he was to Jesus. He's been reconciled. He's been given the Holy Spirit. He's bold now. He'll never deny Jesus again. And so he gives a message inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he gets the gospel 100% correct. And it says the people who heard Peter were pierced in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the message that they cried out to Peter, this is it. This is the first message to ever be presented on the other side of the resurrection. And they say to Peter, what must we do? And Peter said what? Repent. Repent. He did not say 
Go try to do better. You're confirmed. Uh, let us. Uh, we sprinkled you as a baby, so you're good. Uh, you came down front and said said a prayer, but but you don't understand. No, you have to repent first, and you turn from your sin, and you turn to God, and you say, "I need to be forgiven for my sins, and I know that Jesus forgave me." And then and then you're and then you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then you're baptized. And uh, to show the whole wide world that you have been removed from the unholy and you've been made fully righteous in Jesus Christ. And now the sanctification process begins in your life. Dean and Sarah said, I'd, I'd never been told about repentance. It means to turn a 180 away from sin to Jesus. Many self identify as Christians for cultural reasons rather than the good news of the gospel. If somebody were to ask you right now, you say, somebody says, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Based on what? What made you a Christian? And, and there's a lot of people who identify as a Christian for cultural reasons only. A church for the cultural Christian is the place where basic social expectations are met in the name of morals, family, and tradition. If, if your answer is, if somebody says you're a Christian, you say, because I go to such and such church, we got problems. We, we, you got problems. If your Christianity is based on, I go there and I meet social expectations, I go to a church, I've got, I, try to be, I try to have morals, I try to be family-like, and I got a lot of tr Christian traditions, then you got a problem. No, your Christianity should be based on the gospel. It should be based on repentance. It should be based on being reconciled to a holy God. It should be based on now I'm being sanctified. So they want to be viewed as good people. Cultural Christians, they don't want to be viewed as bad people. They want to be viewed as good people. Uh, they're portrayed well on social media. You know, Here we are in our Sunday clothes. Here we are at our church. Here we are doing our Easter tradition, our Christmas tradition. Uh Got a, couple, got a few Bible verses that we know or we found somewhere. We put them out on our social media. And, uh, you know, and, and so we, we look good. And, of course, this is also, they, they certainly believe in God. Don't forget, the cultural Christian, the cultural Christian, they're not a hypocrite. They're not a wolf in sheep's clothing. They're not an agnostic, and they're not an atheist. They believe in God. Uh, and, but, but if, the, if, if and they always will. But if the conversation moved to questions about Jesus. If you say to the cultural Christian, let's talk about Jesus. Let's get real specific about who Jesus is, why he came, what he did, and what he said for us to do. Uh, you know, if you get to talk about salvation, talk about the gospel, then the cultural Christian gets a little shaky. He or she, eh, they can't really stay in that conversation. They'll be okay if you'll just keep it light and, and kind of keep it, uh, you know, on the I believe in God and we do these things and I believe that Christian, you should say Merry Christmas, and I believe that Jesus, you know, died for our sins, and you know. But but you'll notice that that they're really more comfortable with the secular side of these celebrations. It's almost like you know you'll see an Easter bunny, but it'll have a Bible verse on it, or or the thing where Santa's bowing down, you know, and he's praying at the at the manger. This kind of stuff's a little more comfortable. If you start getting in why Jesus had to come and, and be a man, what he came to do, what happened in the garden, what's been going on, what he's here to fulfill, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the Lamb of God, why he's here, you, it gets problematic. You start getting into a lot of scripture, it gets problematic. 
You get outside of John 3.16 and a few Proverbs, you got problems. And, uh, and so that's the cultural Christian. It's tragic that the cultural Christian um, you know, is clueless about the gospel, but there's something deeper. Oh, this one hit me in chapter 2. They, they, know, they don't deep down, listen, this is the cultural Christian, they don't deep down think they need Jesus. See, that, that's the problem with the cultural Christian. They're clueless about the gospel and what it really means, but part of this apathy and this apathetic approach to their, their spiritual life is that deep down, they don't really think they need Jesus. They don't feel wretched. They don't feel in need of repentance. I mean, we saw this. We saw this with the, with the president. I don't, I don't know the state of the president now. I know there's a lot of people that are trying to, to I know he's had the gospel presented to him clearly by people that, that I actually know, and they told me exactly how it went, and they got access to him. There's, there's no sign that he has repented and, and, and has become a follower of Jesus. We, we, I don't know. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe well, I don't know what's happening in his life now. But I do remember when he first was asked the question about repentance, and he said that he didn't know of anything he needed to be forgiven for. Now, but he still said he went to one of the local churches there on, on Easter and Christmas. But he didn't understand repentance. Now, does he understand it now? I hope so. Will he understand it? I certainly hope so. Did he understand it then? No. No, he didn't. That's not being judgmental. I just I heard the conversation. I've, you can go look it up yourself. He didn't understand repentance. And cultural Christians really don't. They know Christian lingo. You know, they, they don't miss Easter. They're going to be in church on Easter. They know about Jesus. They know that faith, faith, that's a real broad term to them. Faith is important. Uh, they, 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 they want to be the perfect, loving, moral, American family. They say because that is to be Christian, right? But, but here's the problem. They're trying to find a way to be a Christian without Christ. I lived it. I did it. I know. The word Christian has Christ in it. So if you're trying to be a Christian without Christ, then you're not one. Th these things that we're talking about, that, that doesn't equal Christianity. Look at some of the stuff he, he wrote down in, on page 30 and 31 of, uh, of chapter 2. When we think of unreached people groups, we envision intrepid missionaries taking the gospel to a place where the name of Jesus has never been spoken. But many American pastors are faced with a daunting task that is very similar to bring Jesus to a place where he is admired, we talked about this last week, but not worshipped, where God is a grandpa in the sky, where many of the people in the congregation are good people who, who don't know they need to be saved. Like their New Testament counterparts from Matthew 7, they know religion, but they don't realize that their religion is the very thing from which they need to be saved. I try to imagine the faces of those calling Lord, Lord, when Jesus told them that they wouldn't be going to heaven. Their religious resumes were something to admire, yet Jesus wasn't impressed. He was outraged. Rather than calling them good people, he actually called them lawbreakers. The modern-day cultural Christians, just like the religious people in Matthew 7, the idea of being saved is unnecessary. After all, they're good people, and they live moral lives. Cultural Christians have faith and they don't consider themselves atheists, but their God is a generic deity rather than the God of the Bible. Uh, he said, you know, back to the, chapter 1, my friend Matt back in seminary parking lot would have called them overchurched and underreached. They could also be called almost Christians. I love that 
They can be called almost Christians. But sadly, an almost Christian is as outright lost as an atheist who wouldn't go to, to church on his best day, even if Nana insisted. <laughs> like the fictional family he told us earlier. And he said, like I did at 13 at an FCA retreat, these people need Jesus. But they're so difficult to reach because they believe they already have him. He is just a Jesus without a gospel. And sadly, that is no Jesus at all. It's a Jesus without the gospel, which isn't Jesus at all. So I knew today that that chapter was so short that we would be able to go into chapter 3, which I'm going to do today. And this is one that's probably going to, there's going to be some bristling on this, which is great. We need that. And and chapter 3 is about civic religion, generic faith that demands and asks nothing of its followers. Uh, Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This is an incredible story that Dean and Sarah talks about. He's talking about that he's going to Cincinnati, and the reason why he's going to Cincinnati is the North American Mission Board had identified it as a sin city, S-E-N-D, city, some, a place that needed to be reached, and we'll talk about why that was. So he tells this story, and he says, so I go to a Cincinnati uh, Reds game. They're taking on the Chicago Cubs. He said there was a loud applause after the national anthem was sung, and a fifth-inning home run. He talks about all that. He said, and one of my favorite parts of Major League Baseball in this day was the seventh-inning stretch where fans sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. We're all familiar with that. And he says, it's a great tradition and all this. He said uh, 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 that, um, he said, legend claims that the song first played at a ballpark at a high school in Los Angeles in 1934. The song became synonymous with the seventh-inning stretch uh, because Harry Carey would lead the fans in singing it during Chicago White Sox games before he became the playman for the Chicago Cubs. He said, but on this day, Take Me Out to the Ball Game was replaced. In the Reds game, the seventh inning stretch did not deliver this nostalgia that I was hoping for. It happened to be a Sunday, and ever since the terror attacks on the United States 9-11 in 2001, Major League ballparks had a new seventh inning tradition. On If the game fell on a Sunday... Singing about peanuts and cracker jacks will be set aside, and during the middle of the seventh inning on on a Sunday game, every major league ballpark pauses, brings out the players from each team. They stand in line with their hats removed, and they play "God Bless America" for all to sing. He said, "Now the Yankees practice this this tradition at every home game, but for the other major league teams, they do this on Sunday games only since the attack on 9/11." This Sunday in Cincinnati, 45,000 people stood and sang at the top of their lungs asking God to bless America. He said, he said well, as I stood there listening to everyone sing this, he said it, it was everyone was together, and he said everybody was singing God bless America. And he said, at this point, I thought to myself, here's 45,000 people all singing God bless America. Why in the world are we considering Cincinnati to be a sin city? Here's 45,000 people that certainly seem to love God. He said, but he went to meet up with some of the local church planters from his denomination. He said that he was connecting with them, and they were having a meal. And he said uh, they had identified Cincinnati by the North, North American Mission Board as a sinned city. I've heard this talked about in our church. 
And this is a church planning strategy that emphasizes highly populated areas with a low number of evangelical churches per capita. And he said, knowing this, I'd been caught off guard by the crowd's enthusiasm during the seventh inning festivities. And he said, so I thought I would do some research because I was kind of confused. These people look like, I mean, they all sing God Bless America together, and they seem enthusiastic about it. Apparently, he said, I thought there wasn't a need for a church planting in the city because nothing got the crowd more excited than singing about God and asking him to bless America. To my surprise, the Send Cincinnati information revealed that only 13.7% of Metro Cincinnati residents were affiliated with an evangelical church. 13.7%. He said that rate is bad even when we're talking, you know, chip. Uh, if you're tipping at a cheap diner, that's a bad percentage. But, but as a percentage of people affiliated with a local evangelical church, it's tiny. No wonder the North American Mission Board had identified this as a mission field. So then, who were all these people singing so loudly? That day in Ohio, I was reminded that cultural Christianity isn't just an epidemic of the American South. I just witnessed thousands of people worshiping enthusiastically in the church of civic religion. So let's talk a little bit about what what is civic religion? I've seen this throughout my life and participated in it. Civic religion is practiced from high school football locker rooms um, to, to the grand stages of Hollywood, you know, where you can find celebrities thanking God during acceptance speech. Have you ever seen this? Does that ever seem weird to you? The Grammys gets me, but they all do. Here's an actor or an actress that has been in a movie where a lot of times they've rolled around naked with somebody they're not married to simulating intimacy. Uh, the language in the movie sometimes can just be, it make it, I mean, sailors get up and walk out, okay? Uh, then you see these people at the Grammys, they sing these smut-filled songs about drinking and sex or worshiping themselves, but yet many of them will accept their award and they'll thank God. Well, that's civic religion. Uh, high schools, like I said, I told you this before, that, you know, uh, they have the team on there, you know, simulating some sort of prayer, but, but none of them live a life that looks like it's devoted to Jesus it, it is, it's rampant in American politics, too. Don't get me started on that. And is expected from national leaders, though the reasoning for that falls somewhere between tradition and being sentimental. This, this is how we can have a politician who will claim to be a Christian, but yet at the same time tell you that they are for aborting a child at any stage of pregnancy. But I'm still a Christian. Or you see someone says, I'm a Christian, but I believe that God's standard of marriage has changed somewhere. Uh, I believe God's standard of intimacy uh, between a husband and wife changed. And I mean, there's some obscure reference to it in Romans 1. That came from one of our presidents. Well, other than this obscure reference in, in Romans chapter 1, of course, homosexuality is talked about in many more places of the Bible. Uh, you could also go to Genesis 2 when God establishes uh, that the perfect helper and partner for a male is a woman, and he never changes that standard throughout the entire Scripture. And I, and I would respectfully disagree with the former president <laughs> that what Paul says in Romans 1 is an obscure reference uh, to homosexuality.
But yet these people will still say, God bless America. Uh, have you ever had a president? Has there ever been one in your lifetime? No matter what their political affiliation is, no matter how they live their personal lives, no matter what they do, have you ever had a president that didn't end the State of the Union with God bless you and God bless America? I mean, they'll say it. It's, it's just civic religion. And uh, so when you look at these kinds of things, civic religion promotes a God without really any definition and a generic faith that demands and asks nothing of its followers. Oh, okay, so you can be a Christian and just completely change your view on where life begins. Yeah, and civic religion you can't. So you can be a Christian and even say that you are for traditional marriage and say that you're for, you know, you know, you can you can be pro-life, but then we look at your life the way you live it. You're really pro-birth because you're not there to help anybody. Uh, you know, when, when, who, who needs help? They might say, "Okay, I'll have this baby." I realize my decisions put me in this situation. I got abandoned by this man. Uh, I don't know where he is. And then we keep saying, "Well, you better have that baby," but then you don't do anything to help. Him. That's civic religion. I'm, I'm on the right political side of all this, and this makes me look Christian, but my Christianity is really more civic than it is holy. That's exactly what he's talking about. He says, in some areas, civic religion is even proudly theistic. You know, like It likes the idea of Jesus. You know, Every now and then you'll hear somebody say, hey, thank you, Jesus. Or, you know, I just want to thank Jesus. Uh, and, and you're like, what Jesus? Well, Jesus I've come up with. Like I've said many times, the reason why men's ministry sometimes is so ineffective is we've taken who Jesus really is and we've tried to make it much more palatable and really that's turned men off because we've turned Jesus into some hippie. And we don't know why men don't want to follow him. Well, men will follow Jesus if we'll tell them who he really is, I believe. Or they'll, you know, or they'll reject him completely, but they certainly won't find themselves in this apathetic, I'm okay with Jesus, you know, Jesus is my bro or, you know, Jesus is my homeboy or you know, I'm gonna like I said, I'm gonna take a you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a, a well-known product like Budweiser and, and turn it into Jesus' name or some garbage like that. Uh, this is civic religion. Uh, it says selective words spoken by Jesus in the New Testament will be used, incited when the political cause of the day needs a rally cry, whether it is government-run health care, the death penalty, same-sex marriage, or immigration. Jesus is positioned to have an opinion that can suit one side, regardless of one's adherence to the authority of Scripture as a whole. We've seen this, haven't we? You'll watch a Democrat and you'll watch a Republican, and they'll both make the case that if you're really a person of faith, you will do it the way they say it should be done. Well, Jesus would take care of people. Well, Jesus would say life you know, begins at conception. Yeah, but Jesus would... would uh, wouldn't want people to be stuck with burdens. Uh, Jesus would let people into this country with no vetting at the border. Well, when I look at Scripture, I see that, you know, the, uh, Jerusalem has a wall around it. You know, and then, you know we, and then we just go back and forth, back and forth. It doesn't matter what my political position is. I can make it work into Christianity. That's awfully convenient. But it's not Scripture. And so Jesus now becomes what? A political point. I, 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 whatever version of Jesus I need to do for the moment, I do. Well, that is civic religion. And, and this was something interesting, moralistic therapeutic deism. And this is important that we talk about this because this <clears throat> is rampant. If you send your child off to a college, with very few exceptions, they will be taught either to be agnostic, 
atheist or one that's much more deceptive to be moralistic, therapeutic, deist. Now, what does that mean? This was a concept coined and explained by sociologist Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton. If you've never seen this book, and I haven't, but I've under, I, I, I have been taught the moralistic therapeutic de- deism, but I've never read the book Soul Searching, uh, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. I'm telling you, if you've got teenagers right now, you've got college kids, you've got to watch for this. But be sure they don't learn it from you. <clears throat> be sure this isn't your problem. Let me summarize, and Al Mohler has also identified this as the new American religion, and I agree with Al on this. Here it is. Look for this in yourself and look for this in your children. Here is the summary. This is the summary of moralistic therapeutic deism. Are you ready? A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. Okay? You go, okay, listen, stay with me. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Be careful. MTD, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I want to be happy and feel good about myself. That's what God wants. Then, number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Hey, God, stay out of my life. I know I can do whatever I want to do because you want me to be happy and feel good about myself. Now, if I get into bind, I want you to rush in and, and, and just fix this thing. So I'll lean on you in times of despair, but if I'm not in despair, you want me to be happy and feel good about myself, so I don't really need you then because I'm already doing what you want me to do. Number five, and this is a biggie. This is in universalism as well. Good people go to heaven when they die. The universalist thinks everybody's going to heaven, but uh, the moralistic, uh, therapeutic deist thinks doesn't think everybody's going to heaven, but good people will. Well, who are good people? Well, they get to define that too. Those are people who let everybody be ha- be ha- be happy and feel good about themselves. You know, you know that you've seen this before, and I, I hate to use this term, but they put people. You know, you see on the bumper sticker, mean people, and then they put you know something after that that's not not very good. Mean people are bad, but they say it a different way. So it's mean people that are bad. Now, what, the way they define mean could be that you stick to, 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 to the Bible and you believe it's the inherent Word of God. And so what they think is if you say that you love God so you adhere to His standards, but if God's standards that you read in the Bible don't make me feel happy or good about myself, then you're mean. And it's those of us that just kind of let everybody be everybody. Have you ever noticed, though, that the... The, the moralistic, therapeutic deist wants everybody to be who they want to be except those who are devoted followers of Jesus that are fundamentalists. I actually shut a guy down pretty good on that one time. He was talking about, you know, he didn't like that I adhered to God's standard involving God's, uh, you know, standard for marriage, uh, God's standard for gender, uh, God's standard for intimacy between a husband and a wife, etc. And he said, you know, I just believe that people ought to be allowed to be whoever they want to be. And I said, well, does that include me? Because this is who I am. 
Am I not allowed to be who I am? See, then you find out pretty quick, it really isn't that way. What it really is, is everybody's allowed to be they want to be as long as I'm okay with it. And, uh, and so if these five things bother you, <clears throat> you need to sit down, I mean, as soon as you possibly can. If you have a child in any kind of government school, uh, any kind of liberal, uh, even Christian school, uh, watch them, they can be the worst, or any college you've sent your kid to. You need to sit down with them and ask and go through these five things and see how they stack up. Because you may find that this has entered into your child's life, and some of you it may have entered into your own. Despite the fact that these principles align closely with the beliefs of many Americans, most people have, you would never, ever get most people to say, I'm a moral deist. They won't say it. They want to say they're a Christian. They're, they're not that comfortable with saying they're a moral deist. But again, it's like saying, I don't want two plus two to be four. If you take this view as opposed to the biblical view of God and the biblical view of repentance and the re- biblical view of salvation, then you can call yourself a Christian all you want to. You're a moral deist. <coughs> so they call themselves Christians, but they're really moral deists. So when asked to indicate their religion on an application or form, many Americans, without hesitation, will check Christian. By this, they mean to say they're good people who believe in God, and they're also not Jewish, and they're not Muslim. That's really what it means. It doesn't mean they're devoted followers of Jesus Christ. It doesn't believe they have a commitment to a holy life. It doesn't mean they they love Jesus so much they're going to obey Him. It doesn't mean they're attached to the true vine so they're fruitful. It doesn't mean they're a wretched sinner who repented of sin because it was wretched and it was severe and it was nasty, and they turned to Christ to redeem them. They went from the old life to the new life. They went to dead to alive. They don't mean that. They just mean I'm a pretty good person. I'm not Jewish and I'm not Muslim. They, they, and they look, they don't see moral deists, and even if it was there, they wouldn't check it. they check Christian because um, it's the new American religion. The word Christian in itself applies Christ, and notice that he's missing entirely from the description of the new American religion. If you go up and see these five things, Jesus is never even mentioned in these five. But then you can call yourself a Christian? How can you call yourself a Christian if Christ never enters the picture? So it's moral deism. Many people who are comfortable with the idea of God and familiar with some image of Jesus have no concept of what the gospel of Christ actually is. There is a perception amongst cultural Christians that the gospel is far more extreme, perhaps born-again people. Mainstream cultural Christians aren't wrapped up in promoting some kind of gospel message. They are simply trying to be nice to others, pursue their idea of personal happiness, pray when something bad happens, and rest in the belief that they're going to go to heaven when they die. That's who they are. They don't want to make trouble. They want to be good people. They want everybody to be happy. We'll pray for you if something bad's happening, but don't make trouble. I'll never say I'm born again. I won't say I'm a follower of Jesus. I won't say I've been redeemed. I won't say I've been reconciled to a holy God. I'm uncomfortable with all that. I really like to keep it kind of vanilla, and I don't want to make trouble, and these other people are radical. They're crazy. I'm not not only going to get extreme with it. Well, i got news for you. The followers of Jesus have always been called to be extremely devoted to him. And we do make trouble. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. 
He's divisive. He upsets people when you present him who he really is. But he also offers redemption to all who are willing to repent. So then you talk about the difference between Jesus admiring and Jesus following. Now, there's a lot of difference in this. Um, So when you have the Jesus admiring moral deist, like Peter and Matthew 16, they can confess that Jesus is Messiah, but they really don't ascribe to that implication of death. You know, death with Christ and consequently death to oneself. You know, Peter didn't really have the right Messiah in mind, and we figured it out. He was solid, and he got the Holy Spirit. But he didn't like this concept that Jesus was going to die. And then ultimately, we don't like the concept that we're going to have to die to ourselves if we're going to die with Christ. People don't really like to die to themselves. I surely didn't. And God had to take me into the depths of darkness to get me to finally die. He said, in 21st century America, unlike Peter, though, we have no excuse. We have a completed Bible, and we know the end of the story. But how often are we looking for a king who exemplifies and grants earthly decorations of success in the Jesus of the Bible, though we find instead that call to die. That, that's why when we started themanchurch.com, you know, the verse that jumped out was Luke 9, deny yourself, pick up your cross, deny yourself, pick up your cross, because men can never really truly follow Christ, and frankly, neither can women, until you're ready to die. Why did he say pick up a cross? Because in the Roman culture, if you carried a cross, you were going to die. And the moral deists really didn't want anything to do with that. I want Jesus to give me the earthly success. I want Jesus, if he can, to keep me out of trouble. I certainly want Jesus to take me to heaven. But following Jesus, sacrificing for Jesus. See, the reason why for some of you, your, 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 your salvation doesn't mean anything to you is because it's never cost you anything. And, and, if, and if your redemption has never cost you anything, I would be very leery. I'd be very leery of where you stand right now. It will always cost you something. Self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience. You can't even talk about obedience. Oh, the cultural Christians hate obedience. You start talking about illegalism. That's legalistic, self-righteous. No, no, obedience is in the Bible. We, we studied the Gospel of John Chapter 14 of the Gospel of John is all about it. So is 1 John 2 and 3. John seemed really caught up in obedience. Paul tells us in Romans not to be grace abusers, that, that we've been freed from sin. We haven't been freed to sin. Jesus said, people who love me, obey me. How about this? You're never going to obey someone that you don't love. You're never going to love somebody that you don't know. And you're never going to know somebody that you never met. Okay? That's why Jesus said, if you love me, then you obey me. The reason why I didn't obey Jesus through a large portion of my life and claimed to be a, a Christian the whole time, but I was a cultural Christian, I was a moral deist. Do you know why that was? You know why I didn't obey Jesus? Because I didn't love him. And you know why I didn't love him? Is because I didn't know him. And you know why I didn't know him? Because I never repented and actually met him. And maybe that's your situation. You know, don't push back on all this. Listen. Listen. It may be for you or it may be for somebody in in your life. There's no submission. Remember James in in James chapter 4, 7 and 8. 
He looks at this church body. He says, I see too much sin in the church. I don't know why these things are going on. We all claim here to be Christians. He said, so it's time for us to submit ourselves into God to resist the devil and he'll flee from us. Come near to God and come near to you. And he'll come near to you. Action, submit, resist, come near. Oh, he said action. No, the Bible said action. It's a faith in action. Uh, uh, A saving faith is a faith of action. We've talked about this over and over. But the cultural Christian wants nothing to do with a Jesus that says, die to self, obey me, submit to me, uh, surrender to me. And see, if you, if you have a Christianity that has no sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're not. That's not the God of the Bible. And look, I used to be this guy. I, I don't care how much you claim to love Jesus, if you do not have a self-sacrifice, obedient, submissive, surrender attitude about your relationship with Jesus Christ, then this Jesus you've invented is not the God of the Bible. I don't care how much you claim it. If those elements aren't there, because those elements are in the Bible. We've studied them in here often. Jesus says, as I said, if you love me, you'll obey me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 14, 23. Many people want the good luck charm Jesus. I just like to keep Jesus around. He's all right. Hey, he can hang with us. I, I mean, we can go to him when we need him. But you know what they don't want? They don't want the sacrificial lamb of God because the sacrificial lamb of God requires action. A life transformed by the true gospel understanding will result in a heart of worship and a desire to follow God. Knowledge alone about the person of Jesus, and you sort of know some things about God, that's not a saving faith. If you have been transformed by the true gospel, you will have a heart of worship and a desire to follow God, and if those things aren't there, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Look, I went from being a cultural Christian, and when I repented of sin, and I was a wretched sinner, and I denied myself, and I died to myself, and I submitted to the authority of Christ, and I said, change me. One of, one of the darkest human beings that you could have ever met, me, self-loving, completely self-serving, all of a sudden, I get back from my honeymoon after Sherry and I got married, and I'm standing on a Monday night with a bunch of old men holding hands, praying, about to go door to door and tell people about Jesus. I literally remember saying, how? in the world did this happen? What am I doing here? I was there because I was drawn to it. I was being, I was born again. I was a new creation. Jesus did it, but I had to submit to it. I had to surrender. I had to repent. And, he, and, and, and he's continuing to change me into a person that's unrecognizable. I don't even know old Rick. Sometimes he'll try to rise up, but at least I recognize him now because I've been changed. And before, I wasn't changed. I just said the right things, and I believed the right things. This is important. The issue of importance is whether this God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is the God you worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, who in the last days has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, verse 2. It's hard to know the answer, but it matters 
for the church on mission because a faith clothed in Christian language that doesn't find its definition in the person and the work of Jesus Christ is not a Christian faith. Jesus dismissed it altogether in these convicting verses in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I wonder why so often we don't reject it. Jesus did. Jesus re rejected moral deism. Jesus rejected cultural Christianity. Why are we so unwilling to do the same in our own lives and in the lives of other people? Theologian A.W. Tozer wrote that the most important thing about someone is what comes to mind when they think about God. Ooh. For the cultural Christian practicing civic religion, it is usually morality and a sense of national pride clothed in Judeo-Christian language. A.W. Tozer, the most important thing about someone is what comes to mind when they think about God. If Jesus walked into that stadium in Cincinnati on that Sunday for the seventh inning stretch, would he say, many will say to me, did I sing, didn't we sing God Bless America at the Reds game and get goosebumps? While there is certainly nothing wrong with singing patriotic songs, and there's nothing wrong with being patriotic, especially when it includes a reference to God. But the disconnect between a theist belief, moral deism, or admiration of Jesus is actually believing the gospel and then following Jesus. So where are you? Where, did, where, where does part two hit you? Are there things in your life that need to change? Is this starting to sound too much like you or someone you love or someone you know? One of the biggest problems that I know I faced and one of the biggest problems you might face is for you to have the attitude of your spiritual life as the following. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I thought that for a long time until it became impossible for me to truly prove that I was good. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for these convicting words throughout Scripture, and thank you for the work that our brother, uh, Pastor Dean and Sarah, has put into a, a book that can be controversial, but it's not any more controversial than you are because it's actually what you actually said. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we take these things and we apply it to our lives and we are, aren't afraid to assess, are we truly redeemed? Or is it just some cultural tradition? We pray these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies, or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at BurgessMinistries.com.